The question is for young people, what advice do I have for how to get the ball rolling? Do not wait for someone to give you permission is the best piece of advice that I can offer anybody. I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week, we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find a list of upcoming guests and reserve tickets for our live recordings. All tickets are free. At the end of each podcast, we provide an opportunity for our audience to ask questions. If you can't make a recording, you can submit a question via Twitter. Just tell us your question and who it's for using the hashtag AskLiveAtTheLortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. I'd like to introduce Teresa Rebeck. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I so appreciate you being here. I'm a very big fan. I've been following your work for many years, so I'm so glad that we got you to come in to do this. Thank you. We usually always start the podcast talking about your most recent work, which is a production called Seared which is playing at MCC now. Yes. And let's talk a little bit about the play, what inspired you to write it, what it's about. It's the kitchen of a very small restaurant in Brooklyn, contemporary story. This partnership between these two guys who have been friends for quite a long time, they decided to start their own restaurant. It's very, very small. It's got 16 setups. They're really struggling to survive. The economics are horrific. And Stringer for New York Magazine comes in and writes a little pop in the best bets column about how good the scallops are. And so then all of a sudden, everybody in the neighborhood is coming and asking for the scallops. And Harry, the chef, decides he's not feeling the scallops. And, uh, and he, just won't, yeah, he just won't cook them. And Mike, the guy who kind of runs the front of the restaurant and who put all his money into the restaurant to starting it, is at his wit's end. And so things kind of move from there. It's really very much about survival and partnership and food. Eventually, they have to salvage the situation. Mike brings in a consultant named Emily, and there's also a, the one waiter who works there with them is a young man named Rodney. So it's the four of them trying to figure out questions of survival and partnership and art. Yeah, I think and it's play, funny. I think the play talks, uh, it, it talks a lot about artistry, and I think we kind of can lose sight of an artist can be in so many mediums in the world. Many chefs consider themselves artists, and what it takes to be a chef and create art within food, things that look good and taste good, and how that can be compromised. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. I think Harry's position, I know Harry's position, there are a lot of things that you have to do to make sure that your work remains authentic, especially someone who's cooking meals over and over and over again, that it's easy for them for things to thin out or to be unfelt. Or There are all sorts of ways that you can lose touch with the artistry or the magic of what you're doing. And so Harry is living in a world where he's working over time to make sure that his work remains authentic. And for him, that means having things a very specific way. There's a toaster oven that he used to use to heat up sauces. And so a lot of these details come from restaurants I've eaten in or I know. The thing with the toaster oven came from a restaurant my kid used to go to up on the Upper West Side. He used to use this toaster oven. Now it needs to stay there and he can't use it anymore. He doesn't need to use it anymore. So he puts other things in it, but it's very specific that it's there. 
someone touches the toaster oven, he gets really, I mean, because he's very on the edge of his last nerve around, this is what I need to do what I do, which is kind of superhuman to crank out a really magical meal in a very small space. The space is actually based on a restaurant that used to be on Fifth Ave near where I live in Park Slope. It's not there anymore. The guy who was doing this didn't survive the economics of the world that we live in. But anyway, so that's what Harry's trying to communicate to people while what's being communicated to him is you can't actually have things this way anymore because the whole thing will go down. There are ways that we need to compromise to keep ourselves from evaporating. So it's that argument because what Harry sees and what actually comes to pass to some degree is if you don't protect that very extraordinary space, the encroachments will become everything, which is true. <laughs> so as but, a, anyway, no, it's all no, no, complicated. Please. Everybody's right at every moment in this play. <laughs> <laughs> but you as an artist, as a playwright, as a director, obviously this is based on truth within your own life as being an artist, being compromised, yeah. maybe giving something up, a page in your script, because perhaps, I'm just making it up, but the producer says, no, you're doing I, really I, well. okay, <laughs> the producer says, you got to take this out. I can't get the funding from so-and-so unless this word is out. And you say, well, go F yourself because this is my art. I think most people know it, but I'm always surprised that no, people don't know this. In film and TV, you don't end up owning your own work. It's work for hire. That's why they pay you so much more money than they do in the theater, because you own your own work in the theater, and nobody can tell you that you have to change anything. I'm not gonna say there's no coercion going on. Of course, there is. So that's actually part of the dealio, and it's very painful. I had several years where I did a lot of work in crime drama. And I wrote for NYPD Blue and for Law and & Order and a couple other shows. Those were my big years in TV. Oh, I also wrote Smash. Yeah, we're yeah. getting to that. Yeah. What you're doing is sort of providing raw material. And there's a lot of noise and you can't hear the truth. You just can't when everybody's telling you what to do or there's a lot of notes and it's just a lot more difficult to do anything authentic under those circumstances. And so when I started writing in television, people were really like, oh, she's gone. She's never coming back. And I thought, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, of course, now everybody kind of is aware that that was never my intention. But at the time, I thought these are very different activities because of exactly what you're talking about, that all the forces that surround you, you have to make their requirements work and still do the best you can for your own instrument. And in the theater, you own your own work, and so you can say, no, I'm not gonna do that. Nobody likes to hear the word no. I kind of love it. Why, tell me. Why? Yeah. Is there something clear about <laughs> you know? But do you take no as a real no, or is it, okay, maybe I just won't do it this way, but I'm gonna get this in Well, somehow. I like saying it better than I like oh, hearing yes, it, for okay. sure. Okay, well that, um, that but, makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, and I have kids. I used to like saying it to them because it was so clear. You know, like somebody said to me one time, it's so hard to say no to them, isn't it? And I'd be like, uh-uh. No. It's kind of fun. No. No, you can't have that. Well, it's good for them, for kids, to like develop a sturdy sense of boundaries and stuff like that. I generally, I've learned to say, okay, that's a really interesting idea. Let me think about that. And, you know, put it into the toolkit, this idea. And then just like look and say, is there anything to that? You know, so that you don't have to accept all the input, you can just go, well, 
Oh, let me think about that. And so that's what I generally do now. In the theater, I can do that. In film and TV, you generally have to go, well, okay, I'll do the best I can. It could be actually an okay way to say no of let me think about that. Yes. Okay, that I'm just trying that's to make. That's my it. favorite way to say and, no. And, you know, that's my other question idea. was something you said before is I want to be able to understand it myself and to our listeners. Uh, when you write for film and TV, you said you're kind of putting out a lot of raw material. Yeah. Can you break that down for me a little bit? So uh, I, we understand it? Well, when I was working a lot in TV, you know, you just write a lot of scenes, and sometimes they change their minds. You know, sometimes the powers that be really do see you as a typewriter. And I always sit there thinking, I'm not a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> not a typewriter. So you can write brilliant scenes, and then they go, well, I don't know, maybe it would be better if this totally other thing happened. And then you think... Yeah, but then you don't get to use these really good scenes. They're kind of looking at you as somebody who can just crank out stuff that they can think about. We're going to come back to this. I want to get back to Seared for a second. Mm. So the set, which was incredible, it was an actual real working kitchen. Yeah. The stove actually works. Rolla Sparza, who plays the part of Harry, who's brilliant, wonderful and He's brilliant. brilliant. I mean, uh, you really should. Yeah. I love the play. I would tell you anyway, just go to see Raul. He's one of our greatest actors. Yeah, he's, and he's, he's wonderful in it. And, and he's, he's just, wonderful. He's just yeah. on the verge of that cocky, full of himself. And he doesn't even put out, I'll think about it. It's no, it's no, no means no. Yeah. But I want to focus in on the set. Do you know what he had to do to kind of study? I mean, his chef skills are pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I have a friend of mine, Susan Westmoreland, used to be the food editor for Good Housekeeping magazine, and she's edited all these cookbooks and worked in all these kitchens, worked with Rachel Ray and all these people on TV, and she went to see it, and she was like, his chef skills are mad. It's true. He's somebody who likes to cook. He had kind of a baseline skill set and a real hunger and he does it all himself. You know, the play is actually written in such a way that, it's, you know, it's a theater piece. I always thought there would be some cooking and some theater magic. But Raul just insisted everything. He cooks everything. And then it got to a point where there was too much. And so they took a couple of dishes that he was cooking. They took the whole dish out and replaced it with other activities. But everything that gets cooked on that stage it's eaten afterwards by the crew. And they eat during as well, which is yeah. pretty incredible. But as a good chef, and me working in a restaurant for so many years, a chef can become very much, like we said before, a very skilled artist. Yeah. So he is creating, he is pulling ingredients and herbs and putting it into the pan and really creating something. And doing it is very second nature, which was pretty incredible to watch. He spent a lot of time with a private chef, and he went to a couple of kitchens and studied with the people there. You know, I will say the research that we've done over the years uh, that I've done, that different directors or different actors have done, our experience of the restaurant community has been wonderful. They're so excited to hear that we're doing a play about a kitchen and they just invite you in and they show you everything. And that's been a great part of the experience, honestly. So he was doing that with a couple of restaurants and with this uh, wonderful consultant, Ben, who we worked with. And then there was a lot of rehearsal time spent with him just trying to figure out what to do when, at what point. It's very choreographed, and he'd be in the middle of a scene, and then he'd go, butter, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and the stage manager had it all written down, like, at what point in the line. 
he picked up the this. Where are the onions? Where's the polenta? There was one day that was so about that stupid polenta. You know, I mean, we were all like, oh, you forgot the polenta again. Let's cut the polenta. No, you can't cut the polenta. So it was a really interesting process. Yeah, and I think also a kitchen makes for wonderful drama because the stakes are so high, especially if your livelihood depends on it. I mean, it could be anywhere, yes. but a kitchen, especially a tiny kitchen like that with one person working front of house and one server, you create this family there and the tensions run so, so high. One person is putting out, what, 65, 100 meals a yeah. night. Yes. And it makes for great comedy yeah. and wonderful drama. I really enjoyed it, and I really encourage you to go see this, and our listeners, too. You know, my question for you is, when the inspiration sparks for you, mm -hmm. I mean, you've been writing plays for a very long time, and now you're directing. Where does it Where come? does it come from? Yeah. No one knows. Okay. That is the answer, and no one knows. Sometimes people ask me, do you write in the morning? Do you write in the afternoon? Do you do a lot of research? You know, there's all different versions of that question. And I finally thought the only answer that's got any truth to it is no one knows. Some people think it's God. Some people think it's the muse. Certainly the Greeks, that explains the prayers to the muse all the time. This complete understanding that there is nothing and then there's something. And that you are an instrument. I think that's a very good question for a discussion around this play because I think that's what Harry is so concerned about is keeping the channel clean so that the muse can land and that's I think important to a lot of artists. How do you relate yeah. to that and what do you do to keep your channels clean to so yeah. you can create? What do I do? You know it's interesting I write a lot you know sometimes people say I'm prolific in a way that they don't seem to think that is a good thing although I'm like listen Shakespeare was prolific, Dickens was prolific, Moliere was prolific, George Bernard Shaw prolific. There's like great people, great models for us in history that present what it looks like to write a lot. And I think it actually started with me when I started writing in television because I did start writing in television because I had no money. I mean, I really, I don't come from money. My husband and I had no money. You know, I had a PhD in English and I was typing at AT&T. You know, I was like somebody's assistant at AT&T. Got paid 11 bucks an hour and I kept thinking, this isn't gonna work. I was a playwright, you know, I was living in New York and doing type work and being a playwright. And then I had this like kind of crazy opportunity to write for television and I thought I had to do it because we had no money. It caused a lot of anxiety in me because I thought I didn't want to go off and write for television and not be a playwright because it was pretty clear to me that that's actually what I am. And so I was doing the work simultaneously, which meant I was just writing a lot. And that went on for quite a while. And then years later I did read that Malcolm Gladwell book, is it Outliers? I don't know, I, let's say it is. He talks about 10,000 hours, that the Beatles were a very good band, and then they went to Hamburg, I believe it was Hamburg, and basically played eight days a week for a whole year. When they came back from Germany, they were a great band. And I love Malcolm Gladwell, I find him very interesting, kind of accessible, curious mind. And he says this thing about if you put 10,000 hours into anything, you get really good at it. Mm -hmm. And I know that to be true. My son played the piano, and he was really, really gifted, and he played a lot when he was a kid. He was a jazz pianist. He went to LaGuardia and 
jazz pianist. Anyway, now he does languages. But when he practiced all the time, he got really good. And when he wasn't practicing as much, he lost it. So I think that's what happened to me is that one of the ways I stay in touch with is I write a lot. But Shakespeare talks about the writing itself teaches you what it's about. And so for me, being someone who's constantly in touch with my writing instrument is a way of keeping the channels open and treating that whole process with respect. You have to respect it. I used to get in trouble in television for saying back to people, I don't think that'll work so much, can we try this? Which seems like a reasonable thing, doesn't it? Like where somebody says, can you make this character do something she would never do? And I go, well, yeah, she'd never do that. How about, can you tell me what you're looking for? And maybe we can get somebody else to do that. Or this, later on I was told that I sounded like I was, you know, they just don't want to hear any, they've gotten onto all my tricks around, like around. I'll think about that and could we do this instead and all that other stuff. But I really felt like don't mess with the muse. If you don't mess with the muse, she will not desert you. And I think that there are plenty of people who understand that and plenty of people who don't. But that's always been important to me. Like, if you know something's wrong, don't write it. And there was also a moment that rather late in the game when I learned the trick of if there's anything in this that you don't like, you can cut it. That was so interesting to me. Like, I'd find a guy, I just never liked that line. And then some part of me goes, cut it. If you never liked it, just cut it. And so more and more, you just get in touch with what your instincts are, knowing that you are the instrument, that the story is telling itself through you. And so you have to keep yourself tuned up. So I'm fascinated by how hard you stand on your morals and your work sometimes in, in television where I guess the producers and the powers that be can be very influential when they're paying your yeah. they're paying your check and a large yeah. one. Like that. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, you know what? That character would never say that, and I'm going to pull this. Very much like Harry's, like, I'm not making the scallops. Go F yourself. I mean, have you found yourself in a situation where... You know, certainly where- I've worked in different shows. When I was on staff of NYPD Blue, it was being run by Stephen Bochco and David Milch. It was his show. And this was before Deadwood. I'm constantly trying to get myself to watch Deadwood, and I just, like, watch four minutes of it and go... Ugh, this is David at his worst. And he didn't have <laughs> Stephen there not letting him do certain things. Anyway, because I deeply admired both those men, and I especially admired when they were working well together. Stephen really would not let anyone else give David a note. The network, the studio, nobody talked to us on that show. And honestly, if they had, David would have punched him in the face. You know, he was really not somebody who could have handled the rigors of dealing with so many levels of bureaucracy, which is part of the system now. And that was a great experience for me those years I worked on that show because we felt protected as storytellers by Stephen's power. He had a lot of power and by David's rigor. And so that was a great experience. Sometimes, you know, you look at shows like Look, I loved Battlestar Galactica. Anybody else here love that show as much as me? And what you find out about that show is that it was sort of tossed to Ron Moore at one point, and they weren't really paying any attention to it, and he managed to do it without anybody really getting too tangled up in what he was up to. And you can see the shows on television now that are those shows, you know, like Breaking Bad was one of those shows, Mad Men was one of those shows. So you really kind of 
want to believe that things will shift back to a time when, or, or that eventually you'll find yourself in a position where they just trust you to do it and that you can have a healthy discussion about, you know, they're the buyer, you want them to be happy, but that there's a little more respect for what you know how to do. Because I think that we live in a time right now where there's a lot of stuff on the air and it's not the best it could be, I think. I'm not the only writer who believes this. And I can't remember where I was. I was just somewhere listening to someone say, it's just awful that we work in the only business where the people who really don't know how to do it at all are constantly telling the people who do what to do and what to change and everything. If that were true with General Motors, mm -hmm. none of our cars would work. I've heard this before. I'm not saying anything that people haven't said before. But it's still something that you yearn for, that there is room for discussion. Obviously, it's a collaborative art form. It's quite wonderful in the theater. I've done a lot of work with Moritz von Stulpnagel, who's very, very fine director. And now I'm working with these astonishing actors. And there's a kind of porousness around, like, can I do it this way? I had this thought. So it's sort of like the collegiality and the community of it expands what you started with. And it becomes really easy to just take a monologue out or to say, no, that's got to stay there for these reasons. And they go, oh, and then, you know, you kind of move forward that way. I'm very curious about, obviously, during NYPD Blue, there was a lot more trust there with obviously something else you could have been working with off the name names. Mm. And they kind of let you do your thing, which is maybe a reason why the show thrived so beautifully. Because the writers... They certainly let David do his thing. I mean, we were all extensions of David. He used to like, every now and then, <laughs> we'd all go to lunch together, and he would sort of look at us all. We never had meetings, because he hated meetings. We'd go to lunch, and I was like, this is it. But he'd <laughs> look at us all and go, you know, this is sort of like School of Milch, like Raphael, you know, the School of Raphael, where Raphael would like just have all these people painting most of his frescoes, and then he'd come in and throw things on, and then, you know, and they'd say it was a Raphael. So that's what he would call us. We were the School of Milch. It was a perfectly lovely thing to be. So you would write a piece or a scene, and he'd yeah. come in and be like, yes. this out, this in. Yeah, like that's a gentle, sometimes he'd be awful, oh. and then sometimes he'd be great. And there were a couple times when I would have to walk into his office and say, David, do not take this out. This bit right here, don't take it out. And he'd go, well, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, well, you know, but it was whatever it was. It was a, a relationship, a conversation. You know, I'd like to know since NYPD Blue was what, 20, 20, yeah, 20 like years that. ago? I'm fascinated about what that writer's room was like for, were you the only woman on staff? I was for the first year and a half, and then Meredith Stein came on. Maybe being the only woman in there for the first year and a half, as opposed to really what's going on now with the Me Too movements. I'm fascinated fascinated about your take on it, where you were and where we are now. There's still a lot of work to do. I'm sure. That wasn't the only show I was like the lone woman. I did a show a couple years ago, I'm not going to name any names because I'm going to say disapproving things about that experience. And there were more women on that writing staff, but the guys ugh, who ran that show, <laughs> sorry, that's why you can't, I can't tell you what show it is, I would walk into a room. And they would be going like, and this was really just not that long ago, they would be going, okay, here's a scene where David's talking to Henry, and then Henry in the next scene goes and he like drives a truck off a cliff and then he ends up in the hospital and this doctor, Frank, da -da -da, I'm making all this up, but you get the idea. And then there's a girl scene right here. Teresa, you'll write this. But I mean, literally, that happened to me 
like so many times. And I finally would say, hey, guys, you know where I come from? We write men and women and black people and white people and old people and young people. And they'd go, yeah, ha, ha, ha. They literally, yes, ha, ha, Tracy, you're hilarious. You know, and I'd think, I'm not hilarious, but neither are you. And then there was one, <laughs> one day when... The showrunner was thinking about, because we didn't have a full staff. I mean, these, that's the other thing is these writers' rooms. I'm always like, do we need 10 people to write <laughs> six episodes? You know what I mean? I'd be like, I don't, this is, doesn't make any sense to me. So we didn't have a full writing staff yet. And he was talking about hiring this one guy who he was like, you know what? This guy's really good. He's really, really good at writing women. And they were all like, really? A man? Yeah, he's a man who can write really good women characters and he was acting really serious and he said you know i asked him one time how do you do this and he said you know i just pretend they're men i pretend they're just like men <laughs> and i'm sitting there like going yeah <laughs> i mean but i thought oh you guys gotta be kidding me and that stuff did not go on when I was working with Milch and Bochco in a much more, I mean, and that was a cop show, cop show, cop, you know, like mm -hmm. we were killing people and saving people's lives. And there was a detective from the NYPD, Bill Clark. He had been one of the detectives who solved Son of Sam. And he retired at 25 years and took his pension and ended up working on the show. He was a beautiful guy to work with. And he would bring out cops, friends of his, and we would hang out with them and listen to their stories. That was part of our research. You know, it was a pretty masculine world, and they didn't care that I was a woman. I mean, occasionally it would come up. Like, if they started getting all testy with you, you'd have to push back, and then they were okay. But it felt like if you could do the job, that was really what mattered to them. So there really weren't a lot of instances where you had to kind of stand up for yourself and say, hey, hello, I'm standing here, and I am well, a woman. You know, once in a while, I'm right. not going to say it never happened. But it was worse at other... It was really... I mourn the fact that this is still such an issue. I do wish we could talk about it as a community. I think there's also issues in the theater, the different manifestations of it, obviously, but I do feel like it's a wearying discussion and we need to be pulling together at this moment in time, and I'd love to see that happen. Me too. I think it's everywhere, not just yeah. theater. Yeah, it's, yeah, in, yeah. it's in kitchens. I mean, yes. you, you hit a little bit on it with Krista Rodriguez, who's amazing, incredible <laughs> yes. in this. I mean, what a she's a big star. What a, you know, she's like on her way to just being like incredible. huge. It's I exciting. Go back a, a little bit to your off off Broadway. That's why we're here, and I could get off subject and talk about your TV career for right, forever. Let's but skip I would love that. to. So your first off Broadway play was Spike Heels. Yes. And that's in 1992. So you moved to New York when? In 1990. Like, I think we moved here right before the New Year. So how did you get your first play produced? I mean, Spike Heels became a very, a big hit. It was not a big hit when it was first done. Kevin Bacon was in it and Julie White and Sandra Santiago. It had like a sort of splashy cast. And, uh, it was produced everywhere now. I mean, it's, it, yes, it, yes. Right. I mean, it's, it was. It went on to, it was one of those things, like the mostly male critics Really, you should go look at it. It was a shocking moment in my life because they really attacked it and me, which was too bad. It was painful. But then it went out into the world and was done everywhere and generations. Uh, I'm like very grateful to that play for 
what it did for young women and for me and for, I mean, it, lots and lots of people have done it in colleges and every year and my casting director friends are like, if I have to listen to one more monologue, I'm, scrying, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> yeah. They're still doing those things all the time and there is a chance that it's gonna be revived. Okay. Um, yeah, which I think this is a good time for it to be revived. The community was not ahead of its time, but for like, People who were not used to women sounding like this, it was ahead of its time, somewhat. I mean, sometimes I feel like one of the artists who I admire very, very, very deeply is Spike Lee, because when he started working, you'd be like, okay, that's a black man writing about the black community from a very specific point in the black community. And I think that that's partially what happened with me is that when you're any kind of writer, that's really what you're always yearning toward is just tell the truth. And I was telling the truth, but it was something that hadn't quite been heard before. You know, Me Too just started happening a couple years ago, so. And this is 1992, and yeah. I would say, if you are not maybe born and raised or live in New York, a woman's voice in Spike Heels. Give us a two-second synopsis of... Uh, Spike of, Heels? Yeah. There's an academic named Andrew, our hero, Andrew, who befriends a young woman in his building and takes place in Boston. And she's like somebody who kind of... She's a street person. She's like, you know, she says... Can I use language? Uh, please do. Okay. Yeah. She says fuck a lot. I mean, I actually, I started writing it when I was living in Boston and the kids were on the street. There was this one girl who was getting so mad at all her friends and she was like, fuck you, Billy, fuck you. I can't fucking believe you did that. I'm so fucking, I'm fuck you. It was musical. It was interesting, mm. but it was mostly the word fuck. And, you know, I thought this is sort of, it reminded me of Pygmalion in a way that, you know, like she had a, different sound to her that had to be civilized before she could move on into a more productive life. So I took this person, Georgie, and this guy who's an academic does this thing with her. He teaches her, he befriends her, and he teaches her things like, you need to read a book once in a while, and fuck doesn't have to be every other word. And then he gets her a job with a friend of his who is a lawyer. And you know, and all of these things were informed by like where I lived, and I also, I was a legal secretary for a while up in Boston. And so she gets a job as a legal secretary, and she's like really smart. She's crackerjack. And then he sexually harasses her because she's very beautiful and sassy. And she goes back to work. I mean, first she tells Andrew, who is her friend, that this happened and he becomes really enraged. And then she ends up going back to work. And that makes him even more angry because he doesn't understand that for a woman like that, that's a really great job. You don't just give it up because somebody's coming on to you. So there are a lot of issues that are really in the soup right now, but they were in the soup back then. It's just that people weren't talking about people it. People weren't talking about it, but I disagree. I think you were ahead of your time as a voice of a playwright who was putting a woman like this on stage and you were really talking about these issues, not only the language that's coming out of her mouth. And I remember seeing it, right, when I started grad yeah. school. I remember going to theater and seeing it, and I went to school in Boston, and I was like, oh, oh. I, I know her. Right. There, there she is, that girl who says fuck all the time, and right. the things that happened to her and getting harassed and then kind of going back to work because she had to. She had. Yes, she had she to. She had no choice. You know, so he's enraged with her for going, and she's like, I need that job. Right, she had you to. You know, she there's just the no. And it is, it's funny, there's a comedic element to it. Yeah, it's very funny. You know, so the world was, or at least the guys were not ready for that mm-hmm. particular story. I think a lot of people weren't. And, mm-hmm. and I think you were way ahead of your time with things like that. Because now, 
Now the issues old. now are, well, I mean, I, I think the issues now are people are talking about it and writing about it. Now, every TV show you watch and a lot of plays, everybody is talking about the movements that, but this has been here forever, no mm-hmm. matter if it's harassment against gay people or women right. or people of color or Muslim people. Now we're finally talking about it. Yeah. Now we're putting it out there. We talk about it all the time. Yeah, well, what, are we, what are we doing? What <laughs> right, are we doing yeah. about it to make some changes? Yeah. So it's a wonderful play. I can't wait for it to come back. I, I hope, I yeah, hope. yeah. Fingers I, crossed. I really do. Loose Knit, another wonderful play. But I want to hit on Omnium Gatherum, mm-hmm. which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Congratulations. That's a, oh, that's thank a you. very, very... It's a, it's a big deal. I love this play. Oh, thank you. We did, too. I think it's a beautiful piece of art. Tell our listeners a little bit about what it's about. Omnium Gatherum was kind of a response to the world we were living in after 9-11. Because I was, like a lot of us were, right there when it happened. And I was friends with another writer named Alex Gersten. And I called her, like, when it was starting. So we were on the phone with each other watching it happen. And then we hung up and went, you know, I was like, I got to go get my kid because we just didn't know what was going to. Where I lived was right on Flatbush in Park Slope, about a mile from lower Manhattan. And they had closed it and, you know, you could just see everything right in front of you. They were just shooting emergency vehicles, the cops and the firemen, and like straight down into the neighborhood took a big hit. A lot of people lost their lives. And, and then the other thing that happened that was really mysterious is that then when the people who got out were walking up Flatbush, like in single file, like on the sidewalks, you know, Flatbush was closed, and they were covered in ash. It was like this two lines of people just covered in gray ash, and we were standing there going, what can we do? And they would not, they couldn't look at you or respond. It was very mysterious. So Alex and I started talking about writing, One of the other things that did happen after 9-11, a lot of people have talked about this over the years, is how careful people were with each other. We were very tender with each other uh, while we were trying to find out who had lived, who had died, like, how are we going to respond, what's going to happen next? And then it became clear that there was going to have to be a military response, that that's the president we had. It was a an experience that couldn't be contained. That was what one of the things that I found interesting about it. We were watching television, everybody was watching the television incessantly, trying to make sense of it. I was like, we're living in history and we can't, it's bigger than, it keeps escaping us. And uh, there was one time when I was watching something and it was on CNN and Tom Clancy, the novelist, told Judy Woodruff that this was all her fault. And I was like, wow, that's such a crazy thing for anyone to say. And Judy Woodruff was like, it's my fault? He said, it's CNN's fault. We're all grasping at how do we know this unknowable thing? And so I thought we were going to start writing a roundtable play of it. This is a television show. This is the roundtable. And then I approached Alex about doing, we're going to do it together. It was because you didn't want to be alone and so, and she was like, let's make it a meal at like a dinner party because food is, you know, and so that's basically how it started. And the conversations in it are in and about what's going on and it's happening. Why do you think that, well, I know why the play hit everybody in such a way. How difficult was it for you to, well, you had your writing partner, obviously you wanted right. to, you, you had a you connection You didn't want to be alone, there, yeah. Right. And number one, how 
difficult was it for the two of you to put this together, or did it kind of just? Well, there were diff- there were different to challenges to that. I mean, I actually I, I have to say that's something I have to draw a little curtain in front of because it was private experience. Okay. Yeah, there were things that were parts that were easy and parts that were hard. Well, it was a big hit, and I think that people really responded to what they were seeing on stage and yeah. were very affected by the words and also the the community that was gathered there on stage together, the connections that people had through food. Yeah, which and is, ideas. Yeah, and ideas. I'm a big fan of the oh, play, and, and I loved it very much. So from there, I mean, there's The Water's Edge, there's The Scene, there's Our House, The Understudy, which was done in 2009. I never know the years. The I got plays it right here, seem, The plays seem very vivid to me. I can tell you anything, but I can't tell you what year they were. Isn't 2009. Where did The Understudy idea come from? And The Understudy is a three-person play about an understudy rehearsal. It's one of my favorite plays that I've ever written, honestly. I just loved this play. And the play that's being rehearsed is an undiscovered Kafka masterpiece where it has like all this Kafka actually, who I had a big Kafka, I still have a big Kafka obsession. He loved the theater. You know, and he lived in Prague his whole life, he loved the theater, went to the theater. There are all those strange tropes, you know. And so I fantasized that he had written a play that had all his strange things in it, and that when they found the undiscovered Kafka masterpiece, that they decided to make it a two-hander. There are two guys in this Kafka play and a stage manager. And one of the offstage people is leaving the show. So the guy who's played the one part is going to move over into the other part, and they're rehearsing in the understudy who's going to take over for this guy. So these are the two guys. And this guy is a like sort of young, budding action star who, in, when we did it up at Williamstown, was played by Bradley Cooper, who then went off to become a megastar. And then the other guy is just a completely loser actor who's just like made just a hash of his life. And the third person is the stage manager. And I actually wrote that part for Julie White, who I've collaborated with a lot over the years. Because one of the things that happens when you write a play is there's like nothing, there's like nothing, right? And then you start seeing pictures or (laughs) things start happening in your head. So you go to your computer and then you start typing things. And then like eventually, and then you print it out. And so then there's pages with like words on them. Then you take that and you give them to actors and then actors read it. This is true. I'm not saying, I know this is like, (laughs) but actors read it. Then there's like a play. So you're like watching this going, wow, like not so long ago, there was nothing, right? And now there's this. Okay, so I'm up at Williamstown doing the understudy and we have this really brilliant design team, Alexander Dodge and Ken Posner and Obadiah Eves and Alexander Dodge had done this thing where he made two triangle things. They're called periactoids, like for those of us theater students. And basically... Greek. Greek, yes. And they would turn, and you would have like a totally different scene, right? You know, they turn, and you turn three times. Anyway... It's basically a triangle, right? And right. each side has a different yes, set Yes, has it, a different right? set on it. So Alexander's got these periactoids up there, and then we're in this like third scene, I think, second, third scene, in the legal offices, right? And there's a window with a castle because <laughs> it's all this Kafka stuff. There's a castle and a storm. And I started like laughing so hard because I thought I made up a Kafka play and now 
it exists. <laughs> I mean, it, it's weird enough when you're just normally doing that, but this time I made up a Kafka play, <laughs> and there it was, and the designers all had gone insane with glee, you know, storm and sounds. I mean, Obadiah, he's a genius, but I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe how much fun it is to be a playwright sometimes. And I just felt like that's kind of an ode, a love letter to the theater because these are people who, like, their lives are really insane. Oh, the other thing that I really like about that play is that Harry, who is the understudy, he shows up at the beginning and he has a monologue to the audience and you kind of don't know what's going on. And then as things go along, he's the only one who can see the audience. You realize that the other two don't see the audience. And so there's, like, as the play moves forward in time and space, you realize that the audience is both there and not there. I love that. Anyway, by the end of it, the whole thing kind of lifts off. It's very magical and funny, and everyone laughed their heads off. It's, it's great. A, it's a great play, a, a <laughs> wonderful, just... wonderful play. So we didn't get an incredible amount of time. I mean, I really wanted to focus in on your plays. We're coming to a close. I wanted to see if anybody in the audience had a question for Teresa. This question <laughs> might sound silly, but I'm curious what it must be like when you're doing a play with a chef cooking in live mode and the aroma of this food is permeating the audience. It's sensed around. Right. So how does the audience react? How do the actors react? They like it. People like it. There's one moment. I kind of don't know how much to give away. There's one moment when he makes this fabulous dish and everybody's like, whoa. And then he throws it away. Yeah. And people go, oh, no. So I think that it kind of adds to the experience of that's what's going on here. Is it actually is cooking and no, you don't get to eat it. I can add to that too. I felt that way too because as Harry is cooking the meal and it looks so incredible on the plate and then bam, he throws it right away. But I was sitting in the second row. He's putting the stuff in the pan with a live fire and the steam is coming up. The smells are permeating around yeah. the theater. So it makes it very exciting. You feel like you're right there. You feel part of the restaurant, which I think was an incredible part of the yeah. play. It worked well. Good question, sir. What's your name? I'm Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Hi. First time listener. I'm already hooked. I like it. I oh, like it good. a lot. Thank you for coming. Uh, I was actually wondering, Teresa, you've been in, obviously in a, a lot of the theater industry and a lot of the film industry, specifically TV. What advice would you give to young aspiring artists who want to get involved into the entertainment industry to get involved and one or the other, or both, or none at all? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. The question is, for young people, what advice do I have for how to get the ball rolling? Do not wait for someone to give you permission is the best piece of advice that I can offer anybody. That now, you know, when I was uh, moving up through the ranks, it really was impossible to do a web series or your own TV series or shoot your own movie. That's not true anymore. And I think it's really exciting how much control, how much we can learn about our craft by just working um, with ourselves and our friends. And I think that a lot of really exciting work is being built that way now. And when you're younger and you're not going to be paid for very much anyway, <laughs> that it's a great time to explore what we were talking about before, the, all the different aspects of storytelling without having somebody give you permission to start and stuff like that. You said before, I can add to that, is there's so much in the power of actually doing. Yeah. 
They're really the, the only way to do. It. The only way to learn it is to do it. I mean, I had a friend at one point ask me if she should go to this, like uh, one of the MFA programs in filmmaking, and I said, "Well, sure, you could do that, or you could take one hundred fifty thousand dollars and just throw it into the air." You know, that would be one. You know, and then I was like, "Or you can take that one hundred fifty thousand dollars and actually make a movie." And that will teach you more about how to do this than a lot of the programs that are out there will. There are some great programs. I'm, this one she was talking about, I'm not particularly a fan of. Rather put it in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you could also yeah. throw it in the air. Uh, I think we have one more. Okay. Who are your heroes? Who are my heroes? Wow. I was just telling my friend, there's a great novelist named Francine Prose, who's always been one of my heroes. For, I think her work is really magnificent. I also, I really love Hillary Clinton. She's always been a hero of mine. I like Michelle Obama a lot, too. I think these are women who stand in the public eye. And sometimes I look at them and I think, we don't really even ever see in their presentation the assaults that they are taking. And I admire that. I admire their courage for all of us. And um, I know I have more heroes than that. You know. What do you think an artist's obligation to society is? I think that that goes to what I was saying before about Spike Lee. I think your obligation to society is to tell the story that you experience and to not lie. But I also think, I personally believe in nihilism. I, I'm not interested in that story. So I believe in stories that create community and show a way forward a little bit. So, Teresa, we, we have a, a couple of more seconds. You're doing so much, I didn't even get to smash, uh, which I would have loved to have talked about. <laughs> I'm a, a big personal fan of it. Um, Teresa has a great website, TeresaRebeck.com. Yeah. And you can take a look at <laughs> some of the things like, that, that she's doing. <laughs> just directed a film, which you're working on. You're directing a lot more, correct? I am directing a lot more. You know, I started directing because I don't think there are enough directors out there. And that it became another way of feeling disempowered, mm. like running around chasing directors. And I don't think that that's good for anybody, for any artist at any time. And so I started directing my own stuff, and that, that was very empowering. And uh, I like doing it. What's next for you? What, what haven't you conquered that you'd really like to do? I have to say, I also write fiction, and I'm about 200 pages into a novel that I need to, like, focus on and finish, you know? I'm like, I keep coming up with reasons. But now I kind of understand now, like, what I didn't understand before. Sometimes what, it takes that long. <laughs> what is it about Off-Broadway in this community that keeps you coming back? Oh, uh, I suppose it's hard to say. I think theater is a beautiful art form. It makes me sad to like go to Facebook sometimes, you know, that I feel like it's better when we're all in a room together and that there's a something magical that happens. I just read a piece somewhere where they talked about how in theaters, I don't know how they figured this out, at a certain point everybody's heart synchronizes. And I think that that's good. And I think that this is a beautiful way to tell stories. And I would be sad for it not to exist. And I think that there's something magical, especially magical about the straight play. I think that musicals get a little brittle for me sometimes. And I feel like that there's a way to render the emotional truths of who we are as human beings in the theater that is very unique and haunting. So 
It's a great answer. I want to take the moment to thank you. Um, I think everybody here, and I speak for myself, your work is prolific and wonderful, and I I can't wait to see what you do next. So thank you so much. Thank you. Sharing your story. Thank you. Please let your friends and family know about this podcast and what we can do to get some more listeners and people really following us. On Instagram, we're live at the Lortel. Same with Facebook. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel, brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Foundation. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and press by Chris Kanarik. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown. House manager is Charles Shipman. Box office manager is Daigoro Hirahata. Social media is Mia Radia. Live at the Lortel is recorded at the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Bryant Falk and Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz and Rebecca Kriegler.